We are beginning launching a new series, and the series this morning is that we are launching into is entitled, We Are Called. You might remember, if you were here last August, uh, we launched a new vision, a new vision series, and we introduced a new vision to Coral Ridge. And in our vision, we talked about being a place of hope here in South Florida, This church has been around since 1959, and it has served as a beacon of hope for all people here in South Florida. And through that, this church being established as a beacon of hope for South Florida has also gone, by God's grace, to the utter ends of the earth. And so what we wanted to communicate in our vision last summer is that this church has always been and will, by God's grace, always be a beacon of hope. A place where people can come and find the message of hope in a hopeless world. And that the message of hope would go out from this place and we would be a ministry of both reconciliation and renewal. Reconciliation, recognizing that man and his relationship with God is broken. And it would be through the preaching of the gospel from this pulpit that would announce to the world that although relationships are broken between man and God, that through Jesus Christ, that that relationship can be reconciled. And that also that it's a ministry not only of reconciliation, but it's a ministry of renewal, that the gospel is not just not, does not just save the sinner, but it announces to the world that God is making all things new. And in our fulfillment to fulfill the cultural mandate here in South Florida and throughout the world that we are agents of renewal, bringing light into the midst of darkness, bringing hope into hopeless situations, and bringing being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But what I want to do this August as we begin a new ministry year and as summer is marked by the unofficial end of summer this week with so many going back to school last week and this week and the next few weeks, I want us to look at not only what is our vision as a church, but what is our mission? What are we called to do as a church? If vision is what we aspire to be as a church, then mission is what are we actually called to do as a church? Boots on the ground, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live as a church? And I want to propose as we look through what we are called to do, hence the name of the sermon series, I want to propose that we as a church are called to do four things in particular, and that is worship, discipleship, community outreach, and cultural renewal. Worship, discipleship, community outreach, and cultural renewal. And each week, for the next four weeks, we will unpack what does it mean for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in 2017 as we fulfill this vision to be a place of hope for South Florida and throughout the world. What does it mean to pursue reconciliation and renewal through worship, discipleship, community outreach, and cultural renewal? But for this morning, we're going to unpack worship. And we're going to do that by looking at Psalm 147. We're going to go through Psalm 147 together this morning. So if you would turn there, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of Psalm 147. We are called to be a people that worship. We are called to worship here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Hear the word of God as it's found in Psalm 147. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. 
The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. The grass withers, and the flower surely fades, but the word of our God, no, the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. What is something in your life that at one point was absolutely amazing, but it ceases to amaze you anymore? What's that thing in your life that at one point in your life you thought was utterly astonishing, but has kind of lost its luster? I think of the story of the grandmother and the, and the grandmother and the granddaughter standing in the kitchen preparing a meal, and somebody asked them, what is the modern kitchen invention that amazes you the most? The granddaughter points to the microwave. The grandmother, she points to the running water. How for something so simple and so common like running water for the grandmother who was born in an era where running water wasn't afforded to every single home and every single kitchen, but to somebody two generations later had lost sight of something so, in her opinion, so trivial and so common, but actually to another generation, absolutely amazing. But when it comes to worship, I want to ask you this question. How long do you have to be a Christian? How long do you have to do this thing called worship and live the Christian life before the reality of God no longer thrills you? How long do you have to be a believer of Jesus Christ and come to church every Sunday and go to Sunday school and come to worship and read your Bible? How long do you have to go through the motions? before the amazing reality of Christ and his salvation no longer amazes you and no longer thrills you. Edmund Clowney, the great church theologian, said, Worship is God's weekly invitation for us to come and tremble afresh in light of the greatness of God. Edmund Clowney said, it is God's weekly invitation for you to come tremble afresh before the greatness of God. My question for you this morning, when you gather for worship, when you come into his presence, when you sing and when you confess and when you pray and you hear the word of God preached and you hear glorious music like we heard this morning, does it do anything to your soul? Does it cause you to tremble as Edmund Clowney says, afresh, week after week after week. Paul actually says that unbelievers should encounter 
that when they encounter other worshipers, when an unbeliever comes into the presence of other Christian worshipers, they should be able to say, I don't even believe in God, but surely he's in this place. This worship at Coral Ridge calls an unbeliever to walk into our doors and say, I might not believe what they believe. I might not even understand what they believe. But those people at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, they sing and worship in such a way that it causes even the doubter and the unbelieving soul to say, surely God was in this place. Psalm 147 is a call to worship. To to, it's a call for us to worship. And my prayer as we begin this series and as we look at worship in particular this morning, that God would make us worshipers. So what does Psalm 147 have to do with worship? What are we actually called to do in worship? Well, the first thing that we see in Psalm 147 in this call to worship, we see that worship is realizing the worth of God. The first thing that we have to understand is that worship is realizing what God is worth realizing the greatness of God, not just realizing that he's useful, not just realizing that he's helpful, but realizing the worth of God, that he is more valuable and more beautiful than anything we could ever lay our eyes on. We see it here in verse 1. The first part of verse 1, the psalmist announces this incredible praise where he says, praise the Lord. You see, the psalmist, when he worships God, he first recognizes and realizes the worth and the majesty and the glory and the beauty of God, and it causes him to say, praise the Lord. The phrase praise the Lord is found in Hebrew in one word. It's the word hallelujah. It means to boast in God, that I will boast in Yahweh. When we sing the hallelujah chorus, it is a chorus of boasting. A chorus of boasting not in and of ourselves, but boasting in the greatness and the glory of God. So the first thing that we have to understand as a people that are called to worship, that worship is recognizing every time you come into these doors and through these doors and into this sanctuary that you are boasting in the greatness of God. It's recognizing that God is greater and more glorious than anything you could ever lay your eyes on. It's also recognizing that your heart will boast in something. Whether we realize it or not, your heart will boast in your greatness. Your heart will boast on your kids. Remember we used to do the bumper stickers, my child was in the honor roll at wherever, such and such school. We will boast in our jobs, in our success, in our wealth. Our heart will find something to boast in. And it is my prayer, and I hope your prayer as well, is that when we enter into the presence of God in worship on Sunday mornings at Coral Ridge, that you are left boasting in one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let that be our boast. Realizing that God is where I find my gladness and my hope. Worship declares, or should declare, that there is no God like our God. The call to worship here in Psalm 47 is a call to boast in God and God alone. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But not only is worship realizing what God is worth, we also, as we move through this psalm, we, we realize that worship is remembering the greatness of God. So after the psalmist recognizes and realizes the greatness of God, what does he do? He remembers what God has done. He remembers God's greatness. And we see that in particular in verse 2 through 6. 
The psalmist recites what God has done. He remembers who his God is. He says things like the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast. Verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted. Verse 4, he determines the numbers of the stars. Verse 5, great is the Lord. He's so great, I cannot even comprehend his greatness. Verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. I was once at a funeral a few years back that was not held in a sanctuary or even a funeral home. It was held in somebody's living room. And the entire service, 20 people took turns just telling stories of the person that had just deceased. And it was actually a beautiful moment. Everybody just remembering and recalling. It was the remembering and recalling of the person that was deceased that brought comfort to the family in their time of loss. You see, that's what the people of God do in worship. We remember and recount the greatness of God. When we sing hymns, when we pray, when we hear the word of God, are we being reminded, or even in the, the particulars of, your, of this last week, or, or this past month, or this past season, when you come in doubting, or maybe even depressed, are you, when you encounter the greatness of God, remembering his greatness in your life? Recalling what God has done, telling the story, the wonders of God. There was a child that came to kids' worship, and he was an unchurched family. His family had never really been to church or never made church a priority, but the child comes into church, uh, kids' worship nevertheless. And the first thing he says to the teacher, he says, I know why rainbows exist. And it kind of caught the teacher, the kids Sunday school teacher off guard and she says oh really why do rainbows exist and the child says rainbows exist as a sign that God would never destroy the earth again and she said where did you learn that did you learn it in a book and the child said I learned it in the Dollar General store in a little devotional isn't that amazing that God even pursues children in the aisle of the Dollar General store. And his life was forever changed by that picture of God's redeeming love and God's redeeming grace. Recalling those moments where God showed up and he spoke to us through his word and brought people into our lives and rescued us in moments where we needed to be rescued and helped and served. Morning by morning. Morning by morning. What? New mercies, new mercies, I see. Great is thy faithfulness. When we come into worship, we are remembering the greatness of God week after week after week after a week through song and through confession and through prayer and through the preaching of the word. So worship, people that are called to worship, not only realize the greatness of God, they not only remember the greatness of God, but third, they respond to the greatness of God. There is a response that is required. After recognizing that God is great and we are not, after remembering the greatness of God in our lives and how he showed up in the most unsuspecting circumstances, third, we are called to respond to the greatness of God. And go back to verse 1. The second half of verse 1, it says, For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. You see, what the psalmist wants us to understand is that a proper response to the greatness of God is to break forth in praise, to break forth in singing, to break forth in worship. 
But think about that word at the end of verse 1. It says, a song of praise is fitting. That word fitting there in the Hebrew means that it is fully complete and complementary. What the psalmist wants us to understand is that you were created to worship God. And that your soul and your heart and your life will always be empty until it is met with the fullness of the worship of the greatness of God. The psalmist wants us to understand that it fits to worship God. That your soul and your heart will forever be restless. Your heart and your soul will always worship something else, will always boast in something else, and you will always be longing and scrambling to find that thing that fits. And the psalmist says that when we respond to the glory and greatness of God in worship, it just fits. Unlike anything else in life. You see what we see here in this psalm is we see a story of transformation. That in light of the glory of God and the greatness of God, the psalmist is breaking forth in praise and adoration. And the picture of transformation should mark your life as well as someone who worships God. It's why we ask you to bring your prayers and your confessions. It's why we ask you to bring your voice and song. You in worship are giving of yourselves saying, I give you my prayer, I give you my sin, God, I give you my voice. We bring you our gifts, we bring our children in baptism, we make oaths to God and to God's people. God, take my heart, take my service, take my life in light of your greatness. And may I be so bold to say that if worship does not transform you on a Sunday morning, then you haven't worshipped. If worship does not transform you, and if there is not a response in your heart and in your life that is visible, then you have not truly worshipped. If you walk outside today saying, what kind of tie was that preacher wearing? You haven't worshipped. If you walk out of this place this morning saying, can you believe what she was wearing? You haven't worshipped. If you walk out of here saying, could you believe how those kids were behaving? kids these days you haven't worshipped if you walk out saying the organ was too loud or I didn't like that hymn you probably haven't worshipped worship transforms by the responding of God's people it's the primary means by which God transforms his people it will be through worship that God transforms our church and our people and all that walk through these doors If worship is going to be a priority in the mission of what we do here at Coral Ridge, then an apathetic approach to worship is no longer acceptable. Sitting in our hands in worship is no longer acceptable. Going through the motions in worship is no longer acceptable. If worship is going to be the priority for how we see revival break out amongst our church and throughout this community. Carl Truman In an interview called How Skipping the Church Affects Our Children, Carl Truman says, when we talk about the millennial generation and those generations that follow, and why we're losing this generation and why they're not attending church, we're quick to give answers like, well, there's so many temptations out there in the world, or the world is just full of postmodern ideas, and the church is just growing increasingly irrelevant. 
And that's the reason why children are no longer attending church and we're losing a generation. And Carl Truman says, not so fast. He says, the church is losing its young people because parents have never taught their children that worship is important. I think this applies across the board. It applies to family worship. It applies to whether you're in church every Sunday and what priority you demonstrate to your children church has on a Sunday morning. If the sun shines and is shining and there are friends that are going to the beach, do you decide to skip church and go to, beach, go to the beach instead? Maybe the reason our children, this next generation as they call it, don't have love for Christ is due to the fact that we as parents don't show them any love or passion for Christ evidenced by how we prioritize our time on both Sunday and both during the week. Worship is transformative. From the most seasoned saint to the smallest covenant child, worship must be a priority here at Coral Ridge. Have you been transformed by the greatness of God? And then lastly, worship is resting and relying in this greatness. In verse 10, at the end of this passage that we read this morning the psalmist says his delight is not in the strength of the horse nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man does that mean we shouldn't wear shorts what exactly is the psalmist saying that his pleasure is not in the legs of a man well the psalmist is referring to the ancient practice of battle when an army would go into battle, the ancient uniform was obviously a robe. Well, they couldn't go into battle with the robes dragging on the ground, and so they would have belts that would secure their robes, and you could see the army's what? Legs. And when you saw the legs of the army coming, you knew strength was coming. You knew people were coming ready to fight in battle and go to battle and go to war. And what the psalmist is saying is even the legs of man, the strongest armies, the greatest people, the, great, the greatest thing that this world has to offer, even that does not impress God. And so worship is understanding that we do not bring greatness. That there is nothing great that we have to offer, but that true worship is responding and relying and resting in the greatness of God every Sunday. God, you are great and I am not. But what does he delight in? He delights in verse 11. He takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. He's not impressed with your greatness. In worship, he wants you to be impressed with his greatness. Worship is resting and relying on the greatness of God and those who the Lord takes pleasure in are those that fear him and rest on him and hope in one thing, no longer hoping in themselves, but hoping in Christ and Christ alone. Those who come every Sunday and say, God, there is none like you. The favor does not rest on me because I am proud or because I am great. Your favor rests on me because of your son, Jesus Christ. My question for you this morning is, what are you hoping in? When you come through these doors and you come into this sanctuary, where is your hope? Because the psalmist says there's only one person that receives the favor and the delight of God. And those that rest solely, their hope rests solely on Jesus Christ. I told this story before, but in closing, I think it's worth sharing again because it's so pertinent to 
worship. It's that story of the, during the communist revolution in China where the soldiers rushed into the church in China and they just started to destroy the church and the pastor hid underneath the pew and he could hear them talking about the church and the sanctuary. And one of the soldiers pointed to a cross and it was a cross with Jesus hanging on the cross and the soldier said, what is that? And the old other soldier said, Oh, that's their king. And the other soldiers said, what kind of king dies for his people? You see, that is what we worship every Sunday. We worship a God that has sent his son to die on a cross. A king that would lay down his life for his people. And you might have never worshipped before a day in your life and never have experienced the fullness of worship of what I'm speaking about here this morning is because you have never encountered the king who hung on a cross only to be raised from the dead. You've never been transformed by that amazing grace. And the question for you this morning, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know this king that was dead but now alive? To offer you the fullness of life so that you could respond in worship and your life would be ever changed, forever changed. You see, that is why we worship every Sunday, so that we would give people a glimpse of heaven. That as people walk through these doors and into the sanctuary, they would look around and say, I want that. I want that God. I want that hope. I want that security. I want that assurance. I want to see, be a part of a people that have been transformed by worship and transformed by the greatness of God. And may many thousands, many thousands be drawn here to Coral Ridge and through these doors, not because of our greatness, but because they want to encounter the greatness of our God. Coral Ridge, may our worship point people to heaven and to the greatness of our God.